0: Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I want to look at the poetry of Salima Hill and one particular collection by her which is called Men Who Feed Pigeons and was published in 2021. And one of the reasons I became aware of this is I went to the live presentation of the Forward Poetry Prize in which the poets read from their nominated works. This was um, just a couple of years ago and the reason that Salima Hill stuck in my mind from that evening is that she wasn't there and someone else read from her collection Men Who Feed Pigeons and they intimated that she was not a big fan of um, poetry readings. So I was intrigued and I read some of the stuff she said about this, which I thought was interesting. She said that at poetry readings, stuff like, and I quote, carefully balanced line breaks and patiently manoeuvred stanza breaks all disappear. So you don't notice the technical skill of the written poem when it's been read out loud, is her theory. And also, you know how I go on to you in these podcasts about the voice of the poem and not mistaking that with the voice of the poet. So often poets use various devices to not quite be themselves in the poem. It gives them more licence to say and do other things. They take on a sort of persona for the purpose of that poem or that collection of poems. And she thinks that seeing a poet read aloud kills that somewhat. She says, it suggests that the reader we have before us is the first person protagonist of the poem that she is reading. The elaborately created fiction is shattered which i had never thought of before, but I suppose if the poet is standing there reading first-person poetry, you can forget the whole concept of the voice of the poem, the persona, etc. Anyway, this book, Men Who Feed Pigeons, is a collection of sequences of poems. What she does in this, Salima Hill, is that she has very short poems and she'll have a little seven or eight or more pages of those poems on that theme and then she'll move on to another sequence and the sequence I've picked is actually 49 pages of very short poems, usually um, no more than four lines and there's probably... Well, there's three mainly or sometimes four poems on each. So you're reading quite rapidly these short poems and it's a bit like having a a pile of photographs and you're looking at the photographs and every now and again you spot a detail which you hadn't noticed on the author, something that explains a previous photograph that you didn't quite get, gives you an idea of where the people are, who they are, what their relationship is. So it works like that, and you slowly piece it together. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of how this works. I'm just going to take one page from the sequence I've chosen. The sequence is called Billy, and I'm just going to read the three poems on that page. And what I would say about these poems is it's a fabulous... Example of how to describe someone who is a bit miserable and difficult and and then, I think with the third poem, adopt a slightly more compassionate look, a slightly different snapshot which suggests some reason for why they might be the way they are. here it goes here goes the three. Poems on, if you want to know, page 62 of Men Who Feed Pigeons. The tea is cold. The tea is cold, the parking is expensive, the women nag, everything is hopeless. Fancy cakes, this is the second poem, fancy cakes. The man whose tea is never hot enough... He's peering at the row of fancy cakes that may look good to everybody else, but not, as usual, good enough for him. Okay, (laughs) you're getting that feeling of poetry. If it was read aloud, it would be read through gritted teeth. And then the final poem on that page, Pain. He moves as if he's not in pain exactly, but wary. like a man dressed in glass. And then that suggests some sort of, well, pain, suffering, difficulty in this man's life. And this whole sequence is talking about their relationship and you're never quite sure what that, relationship is, whether they are friends or whether there is something else romantic between them. But it's full, the poems are full of cakes and tea and pets and the seaside. It's as if they were co-written by Victoria Wood and Samuel Beckett. They're very sort of English and domestic and often very funny and sometimes phenomenally dark to do her credit and as she said in the in the in those readings she doesn't want to lose carefully balanced line breaks and patiently maneuvered stanza breaks etc i'd just like to look at a couple of the poems in a bit more detail before i give you another feeling of the excitement of reading them one after the next. So there is a poem called My Mother's Extraordinary Hair, which begins this sequence. It's a four-line poem in two stanzas of two lines each, obviously. So I started telling him about her hair, how long it was, and white. And I was saying... How, when I was a child, I was scared of it. When, seeing he was getting bored, I stopped. Right, so, the first and last lines of this poem are in our old friend iambic pentameter. Ten beats to the line and very orderly, a very formal metre. So I started telling him about her hair. There's your ten syllables. I, if I'll break it, I started telling him about her hair. I'm counting it now. I started telling him about yes, and then the last one. When seeing, he was getting bored. I stopped. I'm, I'm not. That's not how I would advise anyone to read it. But I'm just going to show that it begins with order and ends with order, and I think. They are his order, his formality, compared to her sort of rambling, excited chatter. So I started telling him about her hair, then has a hyphen, which suggests that we're now going to get her story. How long it was and white, and I was saying, and then there's a stanza break, how when I was a child, I was scared of it. Not in Iambic pentameter now. This is her just free-forming. And how long it was and white and I was saying, that's where the stanza break comes. And it's her. it ends on her, and I was saying, it sounds like she might be talking a bit too much, certainly for this guy. And also, it's a slightly strange tale to talk about your mother's hair and how you were frightened of it. So, very early on, we are getting in the very first poem, in fact, a sense of his order and her chaos, if you like. But also, she's not a narrator who we are completely at home with at this stage. We're perhaps a bit unsettled by her rambling strangeness and maybe a bit sympathetic to the listener. How long it was and white and I was saying how when I was a child I was scared of it. Listen to the I wases in there. How long it was and white and I was saying how when I was a child I was scared of it. It's very me, me, me and it's someone talking about something that's very personal and intimate to them and that can be alienating so I think right at the beginning in a four-line poem you're getting ideas about his orderliness about how she can bore him about how she is slightly self-indulgent perhaps in her own speech and her own stories and that's all in four lines The titles, of course, are also My Mother's Extraordinary Hair is a a great opening to the sequence, I think. I'm just going to look at one more poem this sort of closely. I might chuck in a bit more. You know what I'm like. I love a bit of analysis. But anyway, Restaurant. He's talking on his phone, and as he talks, I'm writing down a list of all the things somebody can do in a restaurant while the other person's on the phone. And it's funny that, I think, just that feeling of somebody being on the phone and something that you can identify with. There's an old, I think it's a James Taylor song, uh, the lyric of which says, if you can't be... Uh, with the one you love, love the one you're with, which sounds a cynical view of life, but it is at least it's a social one and one that's utterly refuted in the age of the smartphone, where if you can't be with the one you love, you just phone them and the one you're with can make their own entertainment. So let's just look at this a little bit more closely. He's talking on his phone and as he talks, I'm writing down a list of all the things. And there comes the stanza break. And you can probably feel the uh, iambic pentameter in that as well. I'm talking on his phone and as he talks, I'm writing down a list of all the things. I'm going to stop doing that. You're just going to have to trust me with the counting. And uh, you get a nice... Bit of suspense management between the two stanzas there. He's talking on his phone, and as he talks, I'm writing down a list of all the things, and then you want to know what this list is, what she's writing down. Somebody can do in a restaurant. Again, that's iambic pentameter, 10 beats. And then the last line isn't. It collapses a bit while the other person's on the phone. And I think it collapses... Because he is breaking the sort of harmony and balance of two people eating out together by being on the phone. He's making a two into a three. He's, he's spoiling things, basically. And it, it is funny, and it's a bit less unsettling than her discussing her mother's hair and I think you do start to steadily side with the speaker in these poems that she's saddled with this guy who she does seem to care for but who also drives her slightly crazy I just want to give you another run of them now Just it's the sequence, the juxtaposition of these which when you read it you really are drawn into this world and you have these snapshots and you sort of enjoy the detective work of thinking, oh, so this is, that's what they and that's where they are, etc. I'm going to give you four very short poems that are across two pages and um, I think they are all pretty wonderful. I always give you the title first because the titles are so crucial. My life as a pair of Crocs, I try to look both earnest and adorable, like surgeon's Crocs before they're sprayed with blood. <laughs> what I love about that is I try to look both earnest and adorable, like I don't think many people would have anticipated the simile which completes that second line, like surgeon's crocs before they're sprayed with blood. And I love the menace of it. And her looking earnest and adorable also suggests the sort of pent-up rage that these two people in combination are creating. The sea... He's sitting with his back to the sea, facing the car park in a bobble hat. I myself am facing the sea. I thought the sea was the whole point. And those those two short stanzas, he's sitting with his back to the sea, facing the car park in a bobble hat. It's, It's like his and hers. So the first two is about him and what he's doing, incredibly sitting with his back to the sea and facing the car park, and the bobble hat she sounds disapproving of. We get in this sequence two or three different hats he wears, all of which annoy her in some way. I myself am facing the sea. Again, you can feel the restraint in this, as if said through gritted teeth. I myself am facing the sea I thought the sea was the whole point point. and like I say the first stanza describing him the second describing her and that big gaping expanse of white page between them they are together just like these stanzas they form a whole a poem but they are also very separate just like these stanzas are separated by that white page on the beach, on the beach he shouts at my dog, I say don't shout, he buys himself a bon, and this is what I mean by the detective work, so on the beach he shouts at my dog, by this stage of the, of the sequence, and we're, we're well into it now, we're several pages in, I'm thinking oh my dog, so they don't live together, she's got her own dog, And when uh, it ends, he buys himself a bon. The himself is very pointed. He doesn't get her one. He doesn't like being shouted at. He doesn't like her dog. Kindness. Some of us like to be kind. And some of us are tired and can't be bothered. (laughs) You see what I mean by Victoria Wood and Samuel Beckett? As co-writers in this, I mean that's almost worth learning off by heart and just dropping into conversation with your partner, isn't it? And some of us are tired and uh, can't be bothered. I think it's interesting that um t- to say I read I read an interview with uh, Salima Hill and she talked a bit about the process of how she writes her poetry, and this is how it goes. So she blasts out these poems, one after the next, bang, 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 bang. And then she doesn't look at them for two or three months. They're just in a drawer and that's it. And then she returns to them and she says that she cuts a good 90% of what she's written and she pairs them down and pairs them down and strips them to this this minimalism that's in this book. I did a fabulous poetry workshop with the poet Jen Hadfield, who regular listeners to this podcast will know I am a big fan of, and there is a podcast dedicated to her. And we had to blast out a lot of writing. We wrote for 15 minutes and we weren't allowed to take our pens off the page so we really stream of consciousness blasted down a load of stuff then at the end of it we had to sum up what we had written but we had to write it in alphabeti spaghetti now alphabeti spaghetti is quite hard to work with and it's quite hard to find the letters so what you do is you find yourself again really paring it down you want to say what you, those three pages of A4 that you blasted out in 15 minutes, you want to be able to say the crux, the real meat of them, in as brief a form as possible, because the pasta is very gooey, and you can't find a J anywhere, and it's a very good lesson for developing economy of expression. And I'm not suggesting for a second that Salima gets the pastor out, but this is what she does. She writes all her thoughts on these topics. She creates this story, though it's not quite a story. She herself says she doesn't like plots, she likes patterns. And the sequence sort of tells us the story, it gives us a mood, it gives us a sense of the relationship, but it's all stripped to the absolute minimum, and uh, just like I learnt to do in that poetry workshop, though you wouldn't think so when you hear me going on about James Taylor and, uh, and tins of pasta anyway, one thing she says, and I think one thing in which she celebrates the brevity of these poems, is that her view is that a novel is a lazy short story and a short story is a lazy poem and a long poem is a lazy short poem. So she always thinks that lack of editing suggests a laziness, that things should be pared down always, to the minimum required to express the big ideas. Rightio. So one thing she's brilliant at is switching from really quite sad, poignant stuff to funny stuff really quickly right next to each other. So if you take these two poems, they follow on from each other, both, Just two lines. One's called Sadness. The second one is called Hollyhock. Hollyhock is a a plant, you probably know. And it's such a change in tone. Sadness. I think he is embarrassed to be kind. As I am to be tender. Which is sad. Again, they get a line each suggesting some separation between them. First one is about him, second about her. I think he is embarrassed to be kind, as I am to be tender, which is sad. And then straight into Hollyhock. He calls his neighbours Hollyhock, a Hollyhock. So I was wrong to think he knows nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when she sort of... We, we, we become co-conspirators with that. It's like someone she can talk to about this bloke to get it out of her system a bit. And one of the things that crops up, which you, you steadily discern, is that she feels he's not quite bright enough for her. And I think we come to uh, agree with that. Listen to this. Sand. The tide is going out as we watch. I can see more and more sand. Sand. I think it's coming in. I hear him say it's good. He's not an admiral or the moon. <laughs> oh, forgive me, but I just love it. Okay. Um, I Just to be fair to this guy, there is a couple of beautiful moments where, and I think I remember having this with my own partner and, uh, We went to couple counselling, and the couple counsellor said to me, look, I don't think you should anticipate too much change in her. You have to decide whether you're going to take her as she is or whether you aren't. And um, I decided I was going to go with it. And listen to this. Him and me. He never seems to want to explain things. It never seems to enter his head. He eats his cake and explains nothing because he isn't me, I suppose. And I think that's really at the crux of so many relationships and friendships. This feeling that the person should be you in some way. There's a quote, I'm going to see. Yes, uh, Iris Murdoch, the uh, philosopher and novelist, is quoted by Salima Hill in one of her interviews. Love is the difficult realisation that something other than oneself is real. And uh, I think the point is that we can't mould other people, we can't subjectively make them who we want them to be, They are who they are, and we have to work with that. I'll give you another example from Salima of this. It's called prayer. Please can God or someone come and render him more capable of awe and less flat-footed? So... More capable of awe, A-W-E, obviously. Someone who just notices the wonders of the sea and all the beauty of nature and less flat-footed. Just Can you change him, please? OK, one more poem, because I've gone on a bit. It ends, quite sadly, with um, Hospital. The uh, We don't know, really, what's wrong with him. We get a few suggestions and we don't know how bad it is. But this is the last poem in the sequence. I'm just going to give you the... Uh, it's the longest poem as well. It's, it's a, a mammoth 14 lines. And we all know what that means, don't we, sonnet fans? Anyway, here goes. I asked too many... Oh, sorry, it's called Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro. I asked too many questions. Why is the orange, orange? What's that noise? Who is offer? Offer is a uh, Anglo Saxon leader, as you may know. Who is offer? How can it be shown flamingo lilies purify the air? Who call Kilimanjaro Kilimanjaro? Which is worse jealousy or envy? Does he agree with the so called moral relativists? That's the end of the first stanza and you get a sense here of she's a very bright smart questioning woman but also as she says i asked too many questions we don't know whether he said that or whether it's a sort of self-recognition as well and why's the orange orange who call kilimanjaro kilimanjaro they're quite poetic questions and the last one, she sort of turns it because she's sort of asking us these questions. Who is Offero can it be shown? Flamingo, lilies, purify the air. Who call Kilimanjaro Kilimanjaro? Which is worse, jealousy or envy? That sounds like it's getting a bit nearer to their relationship. And then, does he agree? So then she turns a question very much to him. Does he agree with the so-called moral relativists? And then is the stanza end and then that expanse of white paper I'm talking about, which always suggests, I think here suggests silence. So she's asked him if he agrees with the moral relativists and he doesn't know what that means. So there is silence, there is a blank from him. And then when she continues into the second stanza, she explains the question. So I'll give you the gap. Does he agree with the so-called moral relativists that what is right for some is wrong for others? And why do drag queens seem to love the 50s, Macintoshes, shampoo and sets? And by the time I ask him if the doctor has mentioned blepharitis, he's asleep, his eyes already small, Look even smaller. Defeated like two pigs in a poke. Uh, blepharitis, by the way, is a, is a sort of a dry, itchy eye disease. I mean, I love that. That's so funny. Why do drag queens seem to love the 50s? Macintosh's shampoo and sets. After two questions, which are, which is worse, jealousy or envy? Or does he agree with the so-called moral relativists? She really is like a scattergon of thoughts and ideas. And I think it's because he never seems to go with her on anything. He never seems to analyse or elaborate, as she complains earlier. And so it's just her firing out ideas, trying to get his attention. But at the end, his eyes, already small, look even smaller, defeated like two pigs in a poke. And looking at him asleep at the end, two pigs in a poke, I mean, that really does sound, it means pigs in a sack, that's what a poke is. So trapped and probably doomed. So it ends compassionately and confessionally, I think acknowledging her own way of being and how it sort of crunches up against his. I love Salima Hill. It's a reading... There's, a, there's several sequences in this book. That's just one that I've talked about, and I've only talked about a fraction of the short poems in it. But you get so much from them. The, the juxtaposition of, of, of the poem after poem is a fabulous experience, and... Um, Her first collection came out in 1984, and she's been very prolific, so there's lots of Salima Hill out there. If I was you, I'd go get some. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. (laughs) See you next week.